time for this week's When the Press Tour is Substantively More Interesting Than the Movie edition (laughs) (laughs) of Spin Cycle, which we shall get to towards the end of the show. We are, as ever, broadcasting from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, always was, always will be. I'm Jess Lilly and I'm in the studio with Quacky reporter Charlie Lewis. A shout out to our buddy Naj Sambal, who is flat out on the sports round this week. Um, so not in the studio with us, but it was fab to see her byline on the front page mm. of The Age today. With a sports story, no less. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think any of the, of the three of us would have predicted that, but, no, but it's great. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, in about 10 or 15 minutes, we will be welcoming author, editor and food writer Jess Ho into the studio, which we're very excited about, to talk about all things um, food writing, how it's changed, uh, what its focus should be. Food is such an, an integral part of not just our lives but the kind of landscape at the moment in terms of the cost of food and yeah, freight yeah, yeah. and climate change and crisis and you know and um, it's it's you know it's it's also culture and it's history and yeah, it's politics it's i am i am absolutely uh i cannot wait to get into this this conversation i think it's gonna be great yes so stick around for all of that and more but first up we will um dip our toe into the ospol media stories this week i saw that the saturday papers karen middleton was awarded Press Gallery Journalist of the Year. Is that something that all of the press, press gallery vote on? Do you know? Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. That, that, so that was as part of the Midwinter Ball, which happened uh, yes. last night, which I feel like uh, we'd be remiss not to get into a little bit. Um, so I guess for those of you, uh, those of our listeners who don't know what this is, and it is such a Beltway, um, Canberra bubble type thing that yeah. I, I suppose it's probably quite likely. Uh, it's a, well, it, it usually is an annual event. It, it, it had a few years off during COVID um, and it's just come back, where basically the... Um, the political class and the the media class kind of get together in Canberra, and, and some lobbyists, by the look of things, as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, it's 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 hard to say because it it operates under what's known as Chatham House rule, uh, which is. Uh, the idea it actually isn't even Chatham House rule because Chatham House rule comes from an old idea of meetings where you can use the information that is sort of spread in that meeting, but you don't attribute it to any one particular person, uh, and it's supposed to allow greater the uh, cone of silence. Yeah, yeah, and, but, but, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose in in its purest sense, it's supposed to be that it allows everyone to speak very freely and for ideas to be robustly kind of ventilated without feeling that there's any going to be any blowback to any individual on any one individual person. In in the case of it's a really funny one because in the case of the Midwinter Ball, it's just it's just a ball. It's just a party. Yeah. It's just there's, there's some speeches. There's some you know uh, they, they raise money for charity. It has to be said, um, but it's really funny because a few years ago, I think it was twenty. I can't remember if it was twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. Uh, I believe twenty seventeen. Um, uh, when back when Malcolm Turnbull was was, was prime minister, uh, Laurie Oakes, the old, the old doyen of the of the press gallery, leaked a bunch of information uh, from that. That evening, and it was it was quite it was a sort of scandalous thing that you just you you didn't break a murder like that. And but the funny thing about it was nothing scandalous was said or done. It was just uh, Turnbull doing a a reasonably you know reasonably amusing little speech where he makes fun of himself and he makes fun of Donald Trump. And right. so it wasn't news about it. And it was that kind of funny thing of being like, this is what you need that cone of silence for. This is what you're protecting is the ability to do <laughs> some some mildly decent stand up about Donald Trump. Like one of the, actually, one of my favorite part of that whole saga was it didn't end up actually causing any great problems for Turnbull. I think people actually went, oh, that was 
decently enough funny is that there was a bit of like oh what did what did Shorten say how did Short because Shorten was leader of the opposition mm. at the time and um, Chris Pine not the Chris Pine who's been has yeah. been um, leaving his body during uh, media tours this week but Christopher Pine who used to be uh, oh, yes, of a senior oh, member of the coalition that. I mean never even made that connection <laughs> that's quite funny um, he was interviewed at one point and he said well the reason why no one's leaked anything that Bill Shorten said that night is because it wasn't funny which I thought was quite a good little uh, burn and I think and, and people who were there that night have confirmed that Short speech did not land in the same way as Turnbull's. No, he doesn't quite have that sort of um, that ease of delivery, does he? No, he wasn't. A but such a, yeah. I, I guess for me, what I I, I, I I mean, I don't really pay that much attention. I do find it a little bit jarring, though, that suddenly everyone's like yeah, frocking up and all a bit high school formal and yeah. all on the same side and, you know, as yeah. though the rest of – it's sort of almost like – Kind of says, oh, it's all just a game, but and, a and we're taking the night off. The whole, yeah, 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 and then yeah, yeah, yeah. tomorrow the game starts again. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it just seems all it just it just all seems a bit too cozy. Cozy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and that is definitely um, it's a funny one because I feel like. Uh, you know, we, we talked previously about, you know, sort of drinks that where the off the record drinks where, where politicians yeah. and, and journalists get together. And a lot of people find that a bit mucky and a bit cozy. Yeah. I, I've defended that in the past. I think there has to be, I think, ways that people can forge connections without you know, and be able to freak speedily, uh, speak freely without necessarily worrying that it's going to be used against them. I think yeah. I, I can see the, the value of that. With something like the the Midwinter Ball, it's just a party. It's, mm. it's why is this why is this protected by some kind of or just, cone of silence? Or just don't, yeah. don't report it. Like, you know, it's kind of like you either have it one way or another because all the yeah. photos are in yeah, the newspaper. Yeah, yeah, And everyone gets to do their little... And um, they, yeah. yeah. I mean, the of course, um, th- thank, thankfully we've got the Greens to bring the drama this year. Um <laughs> I, I didn't realise until we were just chatting before, Charlie, what the context context of these dresses were. But, yes, um, yes. Um, a couple of um, green senators and um, also uh, Adam Bant's wife had frocked up with um, dresses covered in slogans like coal kills, gas kills and... I was mm. just thought they were just being very greens, but actually, um, <laughs> it was sort of in protest of the fact that the ball was sponsored by Woodside, by Woodside and, and, and I, uh, that's a bit that I find just all a bit gross. Like, you know, this is that that sort of you know um, all of all of that sort of coal and and gas, um, all the new projects and all of the projects that mm, are, they're mm. going through. You just want to you just want to remove any sense of impropriety there. I yeah, yeah, and then the, the, you know it's, it's it's a funny one because favor, yeah, it's a favor. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and, and they they always say, oh, it's, it's a very small amount of the of the amount of money comes from from Woodside and Shell is the other one. Um, it's a, it's a, yeah, and and, and no there, there are a, there are Let's just be there are a, <laughs> and there are a lot of. Um, you know, and there's other businesses that have obviously made the news. Like Qantas gives money to them as well. Like it's kind of like, mm. uh, yeah, and, and and so it does all kind of create this little sickly, it gets uh, a bit mur- murky, murky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, thank goodness for the um, staunch Lydia Thorpe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, who, who walked, I believe, who through the... Who didn't just... Um, yeah. It's kind of like a real dip-in-the-toe protest is like, I'm going to go, I'm still going to wear a really beautiful dress, I'm just going to... I'm just going to... I'm, I'm going to say that coal is bad, but I'm still going <laughs> to go... I'm still going to dance all night with these guys. And drink the drinks yeah. <laughs> and eat the food and dance at the party. Yeah, yeah. Not, not so Lydia Not, not Lydia, Lydia. No, no, uh, she's appar- having none of it. Apparently walked through the, the foyer <laughs> yelling anti-fossil fuel <laughs> slogans and then went out and joined the Extinction Rebellion protesters outside Parliament, so... Yeah, there are different ways that you can engage in that protest, I suppose, and that's that's uh, that's probably the one that I that I had the most respect for. Absolutely. 
Um, also this week, um, well, it's been the last few weeks really, um, 35, with 35 new members of parliament, um, there have been 35 new maiden speeches and um, I kind of missed most of them. Obviously there was um, uh, a, a bit of coverage of... Um, uh, Dai Lee and mm-hmm. um, she had a traditional Vietnamese dress um, printed with the Australian flag to represent her um, dual um, kind of uh, identities. Um, there was some criticism of that, which which is kind of interesting, really, because um, we were talking about that before. The you know there there are so many so much of um, immigration is gratitude to a country yeah, yeah 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 you know and that's how she was expressing it but then a lot of progressive politics completely rejects Re- that recoils sort of, from that kind of imagery yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a complicated one um, yeah but her speech was really beautiful and talked about her you know um arriving as a refugee as a child and in fact i had missed most of the speeches but there was a really good episode of 7am earlier in the week with um the monthly's Sean Kelly um, who um, he he wrote a he wrote that book the game the psychological profile of Scott Morrison but he's also a a huge um, <laughs> avid follower of maiden speeches it turns out um, he's a former Labor Party staffer as yes well, yeah. Sean Kelly yes and he um, he was on seven am and he talked talked through some of the speeches and there were some clips played of them and they were really quite moving you know yeah 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 um you, you, yeah we, again we were talking about this before we, we came on air and it is a, a lovely little insight into. It's the most human they'll ever be in, in some ways. It's before this, especially if you know they're an independent or or from a smaller party. Often that's the that's before the system has kind of chewed them up and spat them out. Yeah, um, I mean they, if, they yeah. literally start compromising the next day, but there's still some <laughs> real idealism in that maiden speech. Yeah, yeah, and and humanity, I suppose. I mean, like one of the uh, you know we've obviously talked a lot about people, someone like Tim Wilson. Um, he gave a beautiful maiden speech about about his. Um, about his partner and about how you know there's an engagement ring. This is they, he obviously came to Parliament before marriage equality had been passed, and he said there's mm. a there's an engagement ring that is posing a question that you are not legally allowed to answer, and this will be part of what I want to try and achieve is is an equality for the love that we have for each other. It was a really beautiful, moving speech, and that's and, and then, he's someone obviously I've had a lot of criticism for. Yeah, look what happened to him. <laughs> Uh, it's <laughs> you make it sound like they're related. I don't think that's why he got voted out. <laughs> no, no, it's not at all. But I'm just saying, you know, how far he fell mm. from that mm. moment. It's it's pretty sad if the if your most uh, impressive. Uh, ideological moment in Parliament is is the first speech you ever get given. Then it all goes downhill from there. Triple R. Uh, Jess Ho is a freelance writer based in Melbourne. Uh, they were the food criti- food and drink critic editor, sorry, for Time Out Melbourne, and have been published in publications as diverse as Food Service Magazine, Virgin Voyeur, Time and Tide, Eater. The Guardian, alongside various restaurant guides and cookbooks in Melbourne, uh, over the course of which Ho has become one of the most influential voices in Australia's bar and restaurant scene, uh, with a reputation for no-holds-barred honesty on the hospitality industry. Earlier this year, Ho released their memoir, Raised by Wolves. Uh, They've worked on several podcasts, including hosting the SBS food podcast, Bad Taste. We are so happy to have Jess Ho in the studio with us. Jess, am I missing anything there? Oh, look, I don't remember what I've done. (laughs) (laughs) But somehow you think that, you know, qualifies you to talk about food writing. <laughs> yeah, you know, just just a little bit. <laughs> um, so what sort of kicked off our, our, our sort of interest in the subject uh, for the show anyway was that um, – in May this year, I believe it was, Rob Broadfield, the, the, the food, uh, food critic for the West Australian, for, for many years in that state, um, was, was I, 
ceased working there essentially. Um, and I thought I just thought it'd be really interesting to get your view on. I don't know if you had any thoughts on on that in particular, but in generally, what does that reflect about the state of food writing in Australia? Food writing in Australia has had a bit of an existential crisis for quite a few years, um, not only because of media companies buying out other media companies, uh, but there being generally not enough money in the budget for people to go and dine twice to make sure the experience they had is the true experience. Um, you know, I have been offered gigs where they're like, will you write for our particular guide this year? Uh, the fee is $300 per restaurant. That includes your expenses. Oh, right. But you are expected to order this and this and this and this and have a drink and blah, 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 so you understand the service. And I'm like, that's the fee. And then <laughs> yeah, yeah. you have to do all the admin around it to submit it to prove that you went. You send photos. You, like, describe the dish, which is essentially, like, writing the actual review. Mm-hmm. And then the you know, the counting on top of that. And you're like, it is not worth it. Yeah. So a lot of people are walking away from the job. Is there also um, that there's also that sort of emergence of media where it's kind of a bit pay for review as well. A lot of restaurants kind of pay for the content. Uh, so there's obviously editorial and then advertorial. Mm. Um, I think it's a bit more blatant when you can tell it's an ad, but in this kind of culture where, Uh, media companies want you to click on the page and look at all the ads and they build massive galleries Mm. with like 20 plus images to keep the page open so they can go to their ad people, uh, you know, their clients and be like, see, uh, people were on the page for longer than 13 seconds. Mm. They're on the page for 30 seconds looking at your ad. No one's reading the words. Mm. So it's really just reappropriating the media release. No one goes there, no one chats to anyone, no one really knows what's going on. And then if you are like me and read it anyway, you're like, oh, that said nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so, I mean, one of the things, you know, uh, that's most... The word searing comes up a lot in describing your writing. Uh, searing honesty, I believe, comes up a lot in describing the way that you approach food writing. And I think in that like context... Like cooking a good steak. Yeah. <laughs> better um, than cooking a lying steak. <laughs> um, in the context of, of, of what we've just described, I mean, how has that, how has that affected you, especially as a freelancer now? Uh, I, well, you know, I think people know exactly what they're getting when they're getting me on board. And I think uh, when people ask me to justify why I've written things, I don't really need to ask because it's on the page. Mm. Whereas some writers will be like, that wasn't successful. And it's like, can you say why? You know, because, you know, you need to understand like defamation law and this <laughs> yes. and this. Qualify it. And they can't because a lot of food writers can't cook. And they've never had restaurant experience, so they don't have the empathy of being able to see what's going on on the floor. They might sense chaos, but they don't know why. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the time it is from tables rather than the kitchen or workers. Sometimes it's both. But how do you identify that? You know, people will sit up in a bar and be like, I love it. And then I'll look in the bar and I'm like, that is a filthy, that is a filthy <laughs> bar. Do not drink that. <laughs> like, they have no idea what they're doing. Um Yeah, but like being able to reverse engineer a dish is how you can say that was good or that Mm. wasn't good or these techniques were employed and it was technically perfect. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because there's the sort of old school idea of restaurant criticism or, you know, which I guess is what, you know, in terms of broadsheet food writing, it's, um, you know, the critic is has a kind of a um, charisma about them and the review is entertain is sort of like four-fifths entertainment in a way um, and the, the writing about the field, it, it, it was all about sort of showy writing in, in uh, quite a lot, you know, and, and sort of it's, the food is, 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 is kind of secondary, you know, <laughs> some nice pictures of some plates. Um, you know, I love a good scathing <laughs> food <laughs> review. Do you think there's still a place for that kind of writing or is that sort of a bit nostalgic when in actual fact, you know, Food is political. It, it, it's, it, it probably should be um, or the writing should be much more tethered to culture rather than entertainment. I completely agree with that. You know, I think that no matter what you eat or where you eat it, uh, you're making a political decision because you're putting money in the hands of the people in control. Um, and, you know, we were having, I was having this conversation recently, like, is there a space for bad reviews? You know, obviously people are trying to run businesses, we've had lockdowns, blah, blah, blah. But there are restaurants that you can't avoid writing about because mm. everyone's talking about it. You know, the big name restaurateur has decided to open yet another venue, mm. culturally appropriating yet yes. another cuisine. Mm. But it's going to be so busy. How are you going to avoid it? Sometimes you don't get a choice mm. in deciding to go there, you know, your managing editor mm. might just assign it to you. And, you know, if it's bad, you should say so because mm. most likely it's expensive. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, it's almost like you've got a responsibility to the reader and to keep the publication honest. Well, yes. I think also that, sorry, um, Charlie, the, the, the one thing that um, especially in Australian um, restaurant business, it's not as clear-cut as, you know, they're just running a business, having a go, and it's the margins are low and they're mm. employing people, it's a tough thing. We've seen plenty of, you know, so-called celebrity chefs, uh, you know, in pay disputes. Well, well with serious and yeah. systemic wage theft over exactly. many, many years. And, and not just one, you know, mm. many. many. Mm. Um, and it's, it's kind of it was so interesting to me to expect this kind of, um, area of journalism just to ignore all of that, you know? It's wild. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people that I've written for in the past are like, oh, no, we don't write about that, so you can't write about that. Like, right. we just don't touch that topic. Um, and so, so my response... PR then, is it? Yeah, so my response to that is, well, I'm not reviewing their venue. Yeah, okay. It's not getting space in here because, you know, I've, there's only one of me. I've only got so much energy. Uh, and I'm not going to devote it to people who aren't paying their staff and effectively not running their business pop properly. If you can't pay your staff, you can't afford to run a business. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I, this may be an incredibly shallow question, so forgive me yeah. if it is. <laughs> is there ever a tension between, uh, I guess, the quality of what you would be presented with at a restaurant of that sort and then the morality of what went into making it that way? What I mean is, have you ever said, thought, God, that's actually really, really good, but everything else about this place uh, really worries me or is really problematic and I don't quite know how to communicate that tension to my readers? I have never been in that situation. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, in more cases, like, it, it's very surprising. Um, and as someone who has been paid a lot of money to eat out a lot and not pay for the meal uh, because it ultimately gets paid by the publication... Um, I have had more mediocre meals than you could even imagine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's about being kind 
and understanding um, mm. and knowing, you know, where people are and how they've come up and, um, you know, one skill of a reviewer is going, you know, give them six weeks to get on their feet and understand they've only been open for six weeks. And what people don't realise when a restaurant opens or a bar opens, it doesn't matter what the owner has in mind for the venue and what direction it's going to go to. Your customers are going to tell you what they want mm. and you're going to have to just slowly swerve and change mm. according to how they respond to it. And so you need to dine with the fact that you're only six weeks in or eight weeks in and it's going to be a different venue another six to eight weeks. Two brother, two brother. <laughs> We're talking to Jess Ho, author of The Hospo Tell All, Raised by Wolves uh, and uh, uh, a food writer, but also a veteran of the restaurant industry. So I, I, I think that's really interesting that you bring that perspective because I think, you know, we mentioned that a lot of food writers come from a journalism background, not necessarily a, a restaurant background. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I know I've seen in the UK there's a bit more of a trend towards food writing that issues, it sort of turns its back on the big name restaurants, the flashy food writers who are renowned in the UK who have big careers will always go to and um, confronts issues like gentrification and, and goes sort of to the more you know, street-level kind of um, food eateries and and sort of talk about food that is much more tethered to street culture in the UK. Are we seeing any of that here? We are, actually. I mean, especially with Rashani's publication, Culinary. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think it's just such an amazing publication. It's beautiful. It's actually giving people a platform who don't normally get one because they don't have the money mm. to pay for a company to write a really generic media release and get in the face of media. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's kind of very organically done and I love it. It's mm. so good. I used to share um, uh, office space with a um, food PR company and some of the ideas that they would come up with <laughs> that I had to listen to to try and sell restaurants, I'd just be like, I have to bite my tongue and keep my head down because uh, the look of horror on my face would just be, you know. And there's like they are doing this full time, like six people sitting around a table to get certain businesses at the, you know, in the news. I started in food and drink PR. Oh, there you go. And there is a reason why I left. <laughs> uh, but also I have received – so imagine receiving one of these media releases of one of these ridiculous events that they've come up with. Like a lot of the time it's basically cultural appropriation mm -hmm. with a side of exoticism and then they're like, why aren't you writing about this? And I'm like, do you want real feedback? Yeah. yeah. And in one case someone said yes. I sent them a lengthy, detailed, uh, neutral email <laughs> And they responded, thanks. <laughs> and I think they cried all afternoon. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because um, there does seem to be, you know, there, there it really is a, a kind of uh, the uh, white male media personality chef who runs a whole lot of fusion. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. With, with names that are very, very troubling. Uh, Restaurants. Yeah. I mean, that is a real vibe in this country. Yeah. Um, and it's not being critiqued 
as much as it possibly should or is it just not being critiqued in mainstream publications? So everybody knows. Everyone has this opinion. Everyone's got the same opinion. But they, these particular restaurateurs, are so powerful Mm. that media are afraid of being blackballed by them and not Mm. invited to their things and not privy to information about these places. So it's a little bit of like a chicken and egg problem Mm. of like, I don't want to write about you, but I have to write about you, but I don't want to be blackballed by you and I want to know what's going on. And then everyone has to pretend to play nice because obviously these big restaurants have the money for advertising dollars. Mm. And is that maybe a bit of a shift that we're seeing in a lot of, I mean, I I wouldn't call... We're also seeing in creative industries with, say, music or film, where suddenly it's gone from the newspapers and the publications having the main power to be able to tank your restaurant or your film or your album. And now that's shifted where it's actually the producers of this, the uh, the bigger ones anyway, who are actually able to dictate terms much more easily. Yeah, it's one of those crazy things where you're like, we don't have enough money, obviously, in Mm. media to control... Mm what we get to say 100% of the time. Mm. You know, everything is a compromise. And that's kind of what I mean by media, like food media and food journalism is having an existential crisis. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's it, who's telling the truth? You, can't, yeah. you don't know unless you already know. Mm. Right, right. And, yeah, unless the, the review is not really for you. Yeah. yeah. And, the, I mean, to, to your point, point earlier, a lot of new publications are really just packaging the content f- for advertising revenue. Yes. To let's hit a note of optimism, if we may. Um, <laughs> what what is what do you love about food writing? I love food writing because, like you know, you look at food on TV and it's so like pornographic. Mm. It doesn't really get into the nitty gritty of it. Whereas with food writing, you're actually given the opportunity to describe things and get to the politics of it. Talk about cultures and cuisine. And not just go, mm, yummy. Yeah. You know, like yolk shot. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that with the, with the um, current like cost of living and, and food crisis, I mean, I, I now, you know, I um, have found like I get a food box delivery of like outcast vegetables that were going to landfill because they're not pretty enough Mm -hmm. and it's way cheaper than shopping at a supermarket but then I also go to a bulk um grocery store in Footscray um or the in Footscray market when I can and like I'm shopping in three or four places just to be able to keep you know a family food budget under control is there an obligation given the food crisis we're in for food writing to just become a bit more overtly political you know, I don't think I can answer that because I'm not in control. You yeah, know, okay. yeah, I yeah. I have many masters. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we need to um, get some funding for the for a new food publication, and it's pretty mm. much you. And <laughs> <laughs> look, um, all rich people listening to Triple R right now. I'm here. I'm ready. <laughs> I mean, subscribe first, and then yeah, yeah. Anything you got left over? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think also we should very be very clear that that with all this, with all our talk of how searing and, and and you know, there's an extremely there's a huge amount of joy in your work, and that's part of what's so lively and vital mm. about it. And I'm, I mean, I was very delighted to see you talking a bit of some Melbourne food and wine about 
I, you're, you're very correct, take that Footscray is the place to take out of towners if you want to dazzle them with food culture. 100% true. That is just, yeah, that is a fact. <laughs> uh, that's not an opinion, that's a fact. You walked into a room with <laughs> West Siders. But, yeah. Oh. Um, but, but I suppose that would be the thing that I would really, I, what, what, apart from obviously your own fantastic work, where would you recommend our listeners go for really good food writing? Oh, really good. Like, so you were discussing in the UK this new, like, breed of people mm. writing about grassroots yep. vittles subscribe yes. to vittles yes vittles it I, is amazing yeah because i was reading a, an article this week um uh which is about food writer jonathan nunn yes um because and, that, and that's uh the book that that he's a book of essays called London Feeds Itself, which has a whole lot of um, work, um, a whole lot of 25 different essays from 25 different writers, some of them food writers, some of them not, um, but all sort of tangentially related to food about London. And then, yeah, I read about Vittles in there and just went off and absolutely consumed a lot of it. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Oh, like I subscribe to it. It goes into my inbox once a week. Mm. It is my guilty pleasure read. <laughs> you know, I, I put everything on airplane mode. And I'm like, it's just, it's our time. <laughs> <laughs> and what about, are there any good podcasts that you that you recommend, that you listen to? I mean, we know we you did mention your own. <laughs> <laughs> Which we're allowed to promote now. <laughs> um, I love the Whetstone podcasts. Uh, you know, Clarissa Way did an amazing one called Climate Cuisine and it talks about climate change and how the globalised nature of, like, food and, you know, looking at one food and how it can do so many things and the climate it is meant to grow in. It's mm. phenomenal. Mm. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, Jess, and it's so wonderful to have you in person in the studio. Thanks for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. I, I don't know what it is, whether it's the changing of the season or end of winter or something, but my brain has kind of collapsed <laughs> over the last couple of weeks and, um, you know, sudden, finally everyone in our house is kind of getting sick and the kids are just exhausted and all that sort of stuff. And this week the story that has tickled me, I, I mean, it's like we were talking about how um, a lot of, you know, food, new restaurant launches are sort of PR'd to within an inch of their life. Yeah, or yeah. movie releases are notoriously mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so buttoned down with PR. There's no – there's it's very hard to get any kind of an angle that isn't – totally orchestrated. Completely stage managed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like a celebrity will sit in a hotel room and, and an interviewer walks in and has 10 minutes with mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. while the PR is sitting in the room and, you know, there's really nowhere to veer outside of that. You know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. all of the images are um, pre-vetted and, and released mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And we've seen those sort of embarrassing kind of TV interviews where, you know, there's a live cross from two actors in Hollywood and you can just tell that this... Um, <laughs> This um, five-minute chat with some Australian comedians on an entertainment program <laughs> is about the seventeenth they've done, in, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and been asked identical questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. and had the same jokes made and all mm. that sort of stuff. 
Well, this week, <laughs> not so much. Um, there's a film uh, being, that's being released, and the film is neither here nor there. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll, I think we'll, we'll, we'll get on to that in a second. I mean, I, okay. I, I, I should say I, I've not been as across this as you, so I'm going to probably need a few things clarified. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I might not have all the information you need, Charlie, but um, Don't Worry, Darling is a new film um, with an annoyingly absent comma um, in the title. Um, and it only gets worse from there. <laughs> made by uh, filmmaker Olivia Wilde and it stars uh, Harry Styles, Chris Pine, um, uh, Florence Pugh and uh, a couple of actors who <laughs> did put out a TikTok this week basically saying we're not the ones that you want to hear from so <laughs> we'll just move along. <laughs> so my apologies for not um, being able to name them, although one of them did ha- ha- share a, a, a big kiss did- with Harry Styles in Venice. But oh, anyway, is that Nick Kroll? Nick Kroll, right, yeah, yes. Yeah. And Gemma, um, oh, my brain. Anyway. Do they genuinely put out a, a TikTok being like, no one's no one's that interested were, in what we're up to? It was um, Nick Kroll and um, oh, let me get it up. Nick Kroll and not Gemma Chan who's in it, but Sydney Chandler, um, two of the actors in it were filming themselves driving past. They were at the Venice Film Festival right. and the windows down, and you could see everyone. And they were filming. Nick Kroll was had, made a TikTok where he had the camera out of the window, and you could feel he was filming them and these people were kind of de- looking in and then looking a little bit disappointed and you could just hear Nick and Sydney just saying, no, 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 it's not us. We're not the people you want to hear. No, no, we're not Harry Styles. We're not Florence Pugh. We're not Olivia Wilde. It's like we're not a- Chris Pine. You don't want to see us. No, no, look. Oh, look at their disappointment. Look at their poor little disappointed faces. And it, it was it's very like, funny. It's like the opening scene of Singing in the Rain when yeah. Cosmo Kramer turns up and the crowd goes, oh. goes, oh. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, she's just like, it's just Nick and Sid. You know, in some circles, we're we're great, <laughs> just not here. Anyway, they were taking the Mickey obviously out of the drama, and the drama has been mm. unfolding. That you know, there's um, I think uh, originally it was Sheila Booth who was cast oh, uh, right. in the role yep. that Harry Styles mm. is in, and that didn't work out. And then the director Olivia um, Wilde and Harry Styles um, hooked up on set, and Olivia Wilde's marriage broke down and she was served custody papers while she was on stage somewhere. Anyway, there's all this drama around it and then it's all just kind of exploded at the Venice Film Festival and you could just see this tension. You know, yeah. Apparently Florence Pugh was pretty pissed off about the relationship between Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde and then these um, text messages, Sheila LaBeouf like published text messages between him and Olivia where she refer- referred quite um, patronisingly to um, Florence Hugh as um, Miss Flo. Right, yes. So then, so then Florence uh, has, you know, point blank refused to have anything to, to do with Olivia Wilde since pretty much and now has, there's photos of her stylist wearing Miss Flo T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, and-, and there's also like videos, aren't there, coming out of her sort of while a press conference is going on that she's supposed to be at. She's just like cheersing the camera. Well, she's got this amazing outfit on Mm. and she's just striding towards (laughs) the camera like she's owning some kind of runway (laughs) and with a cock, sipping on a cocktail, basically just... Um, you know, refusing to to do the to do the presser, whereas you know all the other actors just are 
so awkward. It's yeah. just well, I mean, I think it's just other, messy, yeah. and I love it because <laughs> usually these sort of film PR yeah, junkets yeah. are always just so boring because everyone has the same line and they toe the line. And this very regulated actress. I was thinking about this. I mean, the other the other sort of iconic image. There's been a few, obviously, of the last week has been Chris Pine, not former Coalition senior member Chris, <laughs> Christopher Pine, but hunky actor Chris Pine, just sort of, just apparently looking a, a, like he were, appearing to be... leave his body yes. while interviews are going on. <laughs> and of course, then there's the Zapruder film kind of level of detail with this did Harry Styles spit. Christopher oh, it's just um, the gift that keeps giving. And I just started thinking maybe this is just some really complex, this is like the new level PR campaign. This is like 4D chess for PR yeah, where yeah, this yeah. slightly middling film that no one would have really cared about yeah, now. exactly. Everyone's kind of interested in seeing it. Well, exactly. I mean the reviews for it are pretty terrible but um, <laughs> now it's kind of got this drama around it that's like it doesn't really matter what the film is like anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like this narrative has got so many moving parts. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there's these incredibly weird fan threads on Twitter about it's just mm, mm. it's just been so entertaining, like mm. messy celebrity drama. <laughs> yeah. More, please. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it remind, I, I'm thinking back to like, say, what celebrity profiles used to be when they were written by someone like Truman Capote, where it's like very unguarded and very sort of um, seemingly anyway. I mean, obviously, I don't know. I wasn't there. But like his his portrait of, of say, Marlon Brando is is messy and human and isn't that flattering. Mm. And there's something about this where it's like, well, that hasn't happened because of mainstream publication. It's because just the the humanity of the situation has spilled out into places it shouldn't have been. Yeah. And there is something quite refreshing about that. Yeah. No, I love it. I bring more. More, please, <laughs> Miss Flo. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at NadSamble. At Lily Juice. And at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. 